In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Charging someone with being a heretic seems to be on the rise in recent years. Perhaps this is inevitable, given the recent upswing of interest in historical church doctrine in some parts of Christianity. Cage-stage Calvinists can let the charge of heresy slip out too easily. Opponents of the resurgence in historical particular Baptist doctrine and life can then fling the charge back in an equally too glib manner. Can our 17th century particular Baptist forefathers be a source of wisdom in this matter? Well, I believe they can, and this is illustrated by a short letter I'll read portions from. You may recall from previous episodes that a man named Thomas Collier had been sent to the west of England from William Kiffin's church in London in the 1640s. He aggressively evangelized and formed churches, but his doctrine began to slide from orthodoxy to heterodoxy and then to heresy. When he published a confession of faith, the Orthodox particular Baptists were concerned that their churches might all be tarred with the brush of heresy. So they responded in several ways. The first answer was a book written by Nehemiah Cox that confronted Collier's confession point by point. Another response was the publication of a confession of faith rooted in Orthodox Protestantism, which we commonly call the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. In the same month that this confessional response was published, a letter was sent to Collier's church in reply to some members asking for advice on how to deal with their pastor. 
15 particular Baptist pastors signed the letter, which urged the church to consider Collier a heretic and to reject him and his teaching. We don't know for sure who penned the letter, but it may have been Nehemiah Cox, given his leadership at the meeting with Collier, and the similarities of phrasing between the letter and some portions of the 1689 Confession. The letter begins as follows. We think it necessary in a few words to give an account from the Scriptures what heresy or a heretic is, and to consider whether Thomas Collier has not been proved guilty thereof. So they give a two-part answer to the Church's letter, their request for help, So before making a pronouncement on Collier's specific case, whether he was a heretic or not, and what they should do if he was, the men define heresy from a scriptural basis first. Here is their four-part and quite succinct definition. First, we conceive that he is a heretic that chooses an opinion by which some fundamental article of the Christian religion is subverted which religion before he professed, but now persists in this opinion. Contrary thereto, notwithstanding proper means for his conviction, has been made use of. And then what they do is give a a short explanation of each of the four parts in this definition. First, that it is the choosing of a new opinion, the signification or meaning of the word heresy does events, which is derived from a word that signifies election of choice. So the definition begins with the idea that heresy is a chosen new opinion. Second, that it is not every new opinion, but that only that is subversive of a fundamental truth. Otherwise, men must be rejected for every mistake that they are not presently convinced which is contrary to the rule of Christ and the love and forbearance Christians ought to exercise toward one another, end of quote. This is an important qualifying thought. The newly chosen opinion only rises to the level of heresy when a fundamental truth of Christianity is undermined. It's not every mistake in doctrine. Third, quote, he is only properly termed a heretic that has formerly professed the Christian religion, end quote. Since heresy is a change of opinion, the first understanding had to originally be true Christianity. And fourthly, it is the persisting of such a person in such a heresy, after proper means has been used for his conviction, that denominates a man to be a heretic, For a weak Christian may possibly be surprised by temptation and the subtlety of deceivers into such an opinion, as obstinately maintained, would destroy the faith of the person, who yet flies from the snare as soon as it is discovered to him. What a wise piece of pastoral writing. So the final part of the definition teaches that the church should pursue someone with biblical remedies who has fallen into a fundamental error. Some will be rescued, having not realized what they were doing, perhaps. But others who persist are to be named heretics. So this is their definition of a heretic. Let me sum it up. 
Someone who, having professed Christianity, chooses a new opinion that destroys a foundational article of the faith and persists in that opinion by rejecting attempts to correct him. Now, the second part of the letter then showed that Collier did indeed meet this standard of heresy. The examples they give from his writings include a denial of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, a denial of the doctrine of original sin, and a denial of eternal damnation. They claim to have used the scriptural means in attempting to reclaim him by a first and second admonition, but with no success. And so he and his followers were to be warned and rejected by the church as not true believers, but as leaven likely to leaven the whole lump of the churches. There are a number of thoughts and actions worthy of imitation in this letter and example. First, that Collier's home church should take the lead in pursuing his recovery back into true doctrine. William Kiffin was his original pastor, and and so when word of his errors became known, it was right for Kiffin and the church in London to pursue a man that they had sent out to plant churches. Secondly, it's right that several churches, both from Collier's past and present, so in other words, churches in London and Bristol and the West Country, should be involved in trying to restore him. His ministry was widespread, his influence significant. So again, it is right and wise that churches from all the affected areas should pursue his reclamation. This is a good example of churches working together. Thirdly, yet they left the actual rejection of Thomas Collier and his followers to his local church. They did not overstep their scriptural authority. They recommended as a body of churches and as a group of pastors what course of action to take. They spoke for themselves in answer to inquiries from the local church, and yet they did not act in place of Collier's church, who were left with the final decision and action. Fourthly, they understood the difference between a fundamental article of Christian belief and lesser doctrines. And this is so important uh, for us in our day. While all scriptural truth is important, and all scriptural truth, if not believed and practiced, will have a negative effect on churches, heresies actually destroy the faith itself. There is a difference between being sick and being dead. We ought to recognize the difference between errors, heterodoxy, and heresy. Men should not be rejected for mere mistakes in doctrine or judgment, but only those that truly undermine the Christian religion. And fifthly, they made a proper distinction between those obstinate in heresy and those temporarily confused or who do not understand the gravity or the implications of a new belief. These pastors understood that true and good men can make errors and should be patiently dealt with and pursued. May God give us understanding to follow this example as they followed the scriptures. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank you.